from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, you've probably noticed if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, and bless you if you have, but um, there's, there's no usual practice here of having a theme for each week's show. It could be uh, truthfully said that the theme for each week's show is there is no theme. But this week, there's something that's going to pervade parts of this program, and it's, well, it's now called Attentional Overload, at least according to Science Magazine. Research reported in that uh, magazine by uh, doctors Hall and Madsen suggests that contrary to expectations, if you display traffic fatality numbers in traffic safety messages, it's associated with an increase in crashes. <laughs> We're a nutty species, aren't we? Beginning in 19, uh, 2012, the Texas Department of Transportation began posting traffic safety messages for a week per month on its statewide network of nearly 900 digital message boards. The messages consisted of a traffic safety slogan like, Don't drink and drive. That's a good slogan. Somebody got paid to think that. And the cumulative number of traffic fatalities that year on Texas roadways. XXX traffic deaths on Texas roadways in such a year. These messages were displayed when the signs weren't used for conveying, you know, information about it. incidents, road work, or special events. And uh, on the other weeks of the month, fatality information was not displayed. The um, doctors, the scientists involved, compared crashes downstream of traffic uh, board, me traffic message boards across the state during periods when traffic safety messages with fatality numbers were displayed versus when they weren't. They also say uh, they compared crashes on those same highway segments before the fatality message campaign began and on roadway segments upstream. It's before you get to those signs. They concluded that the display of traffic safety messages with fatality numbers resulted in a 1.35% increase in crashes up to six miles downstream of the signs. They contend that these results suggest that messages with fatality numbers are overly salient to drivers. Too important, eh? They do not discuss the emotions that fatality messages induce, but instead focus on their salience in the working memory of drivers leading to cognitive distraction, which leads to driving errors. Now, this seems inconsistent, according to Science Magazine, with other research. It's found that the use of fatality to another statistics in traffic safety campaigns is mostly ineffective in influencing driver attitudes or behaviors, in part because of optimism bias held by most drivers regarding their abilities to operate a vehicle and avoid being involved in a fatal accident. I got this. However, because the effect of the, mob of the fatality messages was greater in urban areas, the issue may be one of excessive salience or of some cognitive overload or attentional overload. Given the greater cognitive demand of multi-lane urban freeways compared with rural highways, the additional cognitive load induced by fatality messages may be enough 
to push some drivers beyond their attentional capacity. Poor dears. Don't tell me, tell Elon. Um, speaking of cognitive, speaking of attentional capacity, this one of this week's major stories has been the uh, the Kevin McCarthy recordings. You're you're familiar with the story, I presume. Kevin McCarthy, leader of the House Republicans, who has been a uh, super loyal supporter of uh, the ex-president and uh, his antics and the antics of his supporters. Uh, the recordings that came out this week indicated that in the early days after January 6th, Kevin McCarthy was telling colleagues things like, quote, I'm through with this guy, the former guy, um, and that he was going to call him, the former guy, and uh, recommend that he resign. And Kevin McCarthy denied this week that he'd said any of that stuff, and then the reporters involved in a new book, which they can plug themselves, uh, issued, uh, made public recordings of Kevin McCarthy saying exactly those things. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of a rough position for a public figure to be in. Say, I didn't say that, and then there are recordings of him saying that. I am, you know, I have my own sources on the inside who've reported to me that he's preparing to issue a statement later today saying that he's never in his life owned a phone. And, uh, you know, that's good enough for me. Hello, welcome to the show. Sheep make wolf 
Yes. From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you with uh, some some affirmation to to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Godly. Our first story in the News of the Godly this week comes from Lisbon, Portugal. Lovely town, be uh, besmirched by the presence of endless numbers of rentable e-scooters. Leave them anywhere, and they do in in Lisbon. Anyway, a commission investigating child. I I just got off on that tangent because I've been to Lisbon. I know a commission investigating child sexual abuse in the Portuguese Catholic Church said uh, this week nearly three hundred testimonies of alleged victims it has collected so far were, quote, just the tip of the iceberg, unquote. That's reassuring, isn't it? I know it reassures me. There have been multiple cases of sexual abuse of children and teenagers in the past, said the head of the commission, a child psychologist named Pedro Strecht. He explains that more than half of the 290 testimonies indicate, quote, many more victims, unquote. The abuse allegations have come from people born between 1933 and 2009 from various backgrounds from every region of the country and also from Portuguese nationals living in other European nations, the United States, Mexico, and Canada. I said, Canada. 
more about that iceberg. I mean, I'd expect an iceberg in Canada, but the, um, most of the alleged victims are men and were sexually abused as early as when they were two years old. The commission started its work in January after a report by a commission in France revealed last year around 3,000 priests and religious officials sexually abused more than 200,000 children over the past 70 years. Portugal doesn't want to be left behind by France. The commission, which is own, its own website and phone line, relies on alleged victims to come forward, but also on access to historic files from dioceses themselves. They hope to present the report by the end of this year. A team of, the experts, a team of experts is working with the dioceses to gain access to the files. You don't want non-experts rooting around those files. Come on. Really, you don't. A sociologist... Ana Nunes de Almeida said the commission requested interviews with 40, 21 bishops in Portugal. Only 12 have agreed to speak so far. That's 21 backwards. No, that doesn't mean anything. The number of victims doesn't stop here. We're just at the tip of the iceberg, Almeida said. From the 290 testimonies, 16 were sent to public prosecutors' offices for investigation. All others were committed over 20 years ago, and so legal proceedings can no longer be initiated. That damn statute of limitations. Brecht said, Strecht said the commission has already identified signs of cover-up cases of sexual abuse, including by bishops who remain active in church roles. Church roles would be... Um, no, I'm not even going to play with that. He said alleged victims were abused in various contexts, including Catholic schools, catechism classes, and, of course, my personal favorite, during confession. That's, that's the right time to sexually abuse somebody when they're confessing to you. Meanwhile, as they like to say on the news, the results of an investigation by an independent law firm into the culture of Hillsong NYC that's the Manhattan branch of the global megachurch called Hillsong. Those results have been leaked to the Christian Post. And its reported contents paint a picture of a church leadership rife with abuse, sexual misconduct, and secrecy. Well, that's the big three. Uh, the details reported by the D.C.-based news outlet, the Christian Post, and re-reported by the Washington Post include several extramarital affairs by the New York Church's former pastor, Carl Lentz, and spiritual abuse of volunteers and staffers, as well as, quote, multiple incidents of consensual or non-consensual sexual interaction between church leaders and congregants, staff, volunteers, or non-churchgoers. Well, they're Catholic in their choice of victims, Little C, Catholic. The publication summary of the report also furthers details of the relationship between Lentz and his former nanny, who alleged last year that Lentz had sexually abused her while she worked for him. A legal representative for Lentz and his wife, Laura, Lo, oh, Tom, Laura Lentz, Laura Lentz, yes, told Religion, Religion News Service there were several aspects of the report the Lentz's allege are untrue, and incorrect. They're aggressively moving forward with legal action due to these libelous claims, Tom? Libel. Yeah. That are rooted in lies. Lies. 
and information and misinformation, according to the legal representative for Lentz and his wife. The leaked report, according to the Washington Post, is latest in a seesaw of scandalous revelations in recent weeks between the United States and Australia, where the multi-campus Pentecostal powerhouse was founded and has its headquarters. In late March, Hillsong put out a statement that revealed two incidents of sexual indiscretion by the church's co-founder and global senior pastor, Brian Houston. He resigned soon after that statement. In the same week, a less-than-flattering documentary on Hillsong aired on Discovery+. Plus. They're still in business, unlike another plus I could mention. And details of another report were leaked also to the Christian Post, alleging that Reed Bogard, the former pastor of Hillsong's Dallas church, had raped a junior staff member. In the aftermath of these events, multiple prominent Hillsong pastors in the United States have resigned or announced that they are disaffiliating themselves from the blessed Hillsong. Didn't like the song, didn't like the melody, didn't like the words. Like the Bogard report, the church's global board had kept the results of the Hillsong NYC investigation under wraps since it was delivered more than a year ago. They cited privacy concerns. The investigation was triggered by the firing of Lentz for an extramarital affair. In the aftermath, numerous people came forward alleging a culture of abuse, volunteer mistreatment, and a celebrity-like hierarchy within the Hillsong New York city leadership. After a media firestorm, the board hired a New York law firm to conduct an investigation into what went wrong at Hillsong NYC and the church's U.S. network. Last February, Hillsong leadership announced the investigation had been completed and found significant ways the New York City church, quote, failed to reflect Hillsong global culture. At the time, church's global leadership said it would undertake a number of structural changes at Hillsong East Coast to address the concerns. Moving, uh, I guess, the doors so they uh, open outward instead of inward. Details in the investigation as reported by the Christian Post, though, reveal a much darker and more lurid picture of the church's leadership culture that went well beyond Lentz, although he featured heavily within it. According to the report, he acted with so much freedom in running Hillsong NYC, there was a sense that leaders in Australia had little to no control over him. According to the the, uh, Christian newspaper, multiple staffers in New York recalled Lentz saying, quote, Australia is dead to us, unquote. That's where the leadership is. Investigators noted in the report, though, that the Australian mothership appears also to bear some responsibility since it never established effective oversight and accountability. That permitted Lentz to assume the role of final arbiter of what was proper behavior for everyone in New York, himself included. With the benefit of hindsight, this was a recipe for trouble, said the investigators. Yeah, you needed hindsight to know that. Quote, it was not uncommon for volunteers and staff who had frequent interaction with Carl Lentz to report that such interaction had caused them to suffer from mental illness, the investigators report. They detailed widespread sexual misconduct in that report, including the alleged circulation of penis photos among staffers and volunteers and subsequent cover-ups, I guess, of the photos or the distribution thereof. Didn't say whose. 
Other allegations such as self-dealing, conflicts of interest, wage and hour violations, discrimination, and non-sexual harassment and abuse are also in the report. The uh, report included reviews of the head of Hillsong, New York City's text messages. They include messages from masseuse, quoting Lenz, the cost of massages and sexual acts. Interviews with Lenz are in the report. He admitted to investigators he'd had multiple affairs and said he was a very good liar, including boldly lying to his wife when she caught him in flagrante Delecto, with someone else on a couch late at night. Well, it just gets more lurid after that, ladies and gentlemen. We're not that kind of program. Religion News Service's attempts to reach Hillsong have uh, gone unanswered. That's what you do when you're godly. You don't got to answer. That was news of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, even when it's too lurid for broadcast, it is a copyrighted feature of this very broadcast. And now... that pray through because it's not time for a news of the smart world yet. But you might as well hear that. Because it's cute. You know what I'm saying? Of course you know what I'm saying. Cute. But uh, actually now, here's what it is time for. The Apologies of the Week. And no, I'm not going to play that all the way through. The president of a religious feminist organization, letting that phrase sink in, apologized in a video this week for silencing victims of a former president of the group who has been accused of sexual harassment. Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance a nonprofit that has led the charge for empowering women in Orthodox Judaism. That's a task. There's, there's some rolling up of sleeves when you tackle that task. Was implicated, the alliance, when two former executive directors said that former President Batsheva Marcus harassed them and the board members had told them to stay quiet. One of those board members is now at the forefront of this reckoning. We have hurt and disappointed our supporters. We must work now to rebuild their trust, current President Pam Scheininger said in a recorded statement. Facing our own truths, we must say we have done wrong. She added that the organization's policy to require require departing employees to sign non-disclosure agreements was, quote, the wrong thing to do. 
We prevented people from speaking their truths from protecting others and healing, she said in a recorded statement posted to YouTube. Dateline Encinitas, California, San Diego Union High School District Superintendent Dr. Cheryl James Ward has been placed on administrative leave following insensitive comments made toward Asian students and families during a recent district training. During a discussion about different demographics receiving D and F grades, Ward said many Asian students were excelling due to coming from wealth. Dozens spoke out on the topic and called for Ward's resignation during a heated board meeting. The board voted 3 to 1 to place her on leave. Several people did accept Ward's apology. District parents who attended the board meeting, they still believe more needs to be done. Former mayor from Maryland's eastern shore has pleaded guilty to five counts of distributing revenge porn. According to the state prosecutor's office, ex-Cambridge Mayor Andrew Bradshaw received a suspended sentence of five years and five days of incarceration, three years of supervised probation, and a $5,000 fine after he pleaded guilty to illegally distributing pornographic material of his ex-girlfriend online. Such actions, said a prosecutor, are especially egregious when committed by an individual holding a public leadership role of public and authority, of power and authority. Bradshaw took office last year as mayor of Cambridge, a town about one and a half hours outside Baltimore. He resigned a year later after police raided his home, and state prosecutors unveiled 50 counts against him. In his resignation letter, he said the criminal case caused his colleagues lose confidence in him. The mayor promised to prove by my words and my actions publicly and privately the authenticity of my beliefs. I apologize to the citizens of Cambridge for having to make this decision to those who have business here, to those who work here, and to all those who care about what becomes of this place. The actions for which I've been accused do not reflect my beliefs or my character. They are anathema to everything I hold in my heart and mind. As a result of the plea agreement, he'll not face prison time. He also agreed to pay $750 to the victim to complete 100 hours of community service. Boris Johnson has apologized to members of parliament after he was actually fined for breaking lockdown rules during the coronavirus pandemic. He is, of course, the prime minister of Great Britain, actually of England. And uh, this story's been going on for some time. He was fined after the Metropolitan Police, that's Scotland Yard, do you and me, found he had attended parties hosted by Downing Street, that's the headquarters of the Prime Minister, in a scandal known as, of course, Partygate, while the rest of the country was prohibited from socializing. The uh, opposition leader called it a joke, and said Johnson was insulting the public with his nonsense, mealy-mouthed apology. The, begin, uh, the beginning of the Prime Minister's apology said, Let me begin in all humility 
I received a fixed penalty notice relating to an event. Now, when Boris Johnson starts a statement by saying, in all humility, you know he's sincere. Disbarred lawyer Robert Menard, prosecutors say, pocketed or mishandled as much as $1 million from clients and his ex-law partner. He was, this is in Milwaukee, he was sentenced to six months in the House of Correction. He was also sentenced, the once prominent lawyer was, to four years in prison, followed by four years of extended supervision. The judge did stay the prison time. Menard was uh, ordered to know to do 50, 100 hours of community service. A tearful Menard apologized for his actions. An apology, the judge said, he accepted on behalf of Milwaukee County. He was apologizing for the uh, four felony counts of theft and embezzlement that he, to which he pleaded guilty. And uh, finally, in our uh, hip-hopping across the country, Apology-wise, on the night of October 30, 1880, a fight broke out at John Asmussen's saloon in Denver. This is reported by Smithsonian Magazine, which would care about 1880. The scuffle, which involved two Chinese men and several of the bar's white patrons, spilled out onto the street outside, Wazee Street. That's in a poor that was in a poor majority Chinese neighborhood that bordered the city's red light district. Coincidence? Soon some 3,000 white people had gathered, terrorizing Chinese residents and destroying Chinese-owned businesses and property. Despite a murder and property damage equaling more than $50,000, it would be one point million today, perpetrators were never punished, Chinese business and property owners were never compensated for their losses. Now... 142 years later, the city of Denver is formally apologizing for the incident, believed to be the Mile High City's first race riot. Got to start somewhere. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock signed a letter at an event this week at the University of Colorado, Denver, sincerely apologizing to Denver's early Chinese residents and their descendants, noting the city contributed to nearly a century of violence and discrimination by way of racial hostility and institutional inequities toward Chinese immigrants. In the letter, Hancock detailed various discriminatory practices and racist actions the city took toward Asian American residents throughout its history, including forcing Chinese immigrants to live in a segregated area and later condemning and dismantling the city's Chinatown neighborhood. You have to live there and we're destroying it, would be the two things in, in in sequence. Quote, an admission of the wrongs committed and its failure to correct them is a first step toward recognizing and honoring Asian American and Pacific Islanders' contributions and can contribute to racial conciliation, according to the mayor's letter. It will also serve to educate those who are ignorant of this shameful chapter in Colorado's history and hopefully will bring some closure to the families whose loved ones suffered racial violence and abuse. Those wrongs began years before the riot. Chinese immigrants began moving to Denver in 1869, finding work on the railroads, in mines, and in the service industry. The city only allowed them to live in that small section. Meanwhile, a wave of anti-Chinese sentiment was building across the country. There were uh, restricted covenants and unspoken agreements in Denver to keep the uh, Chinese immigrants from moving elsewhere and taking or getting better-paying jobs. 
White men pushed Chinese immigrants out of Colorado mining towns and acting under the misconception that the immigrants presented a health hazard to white residents, used them as scapegoats for crimes, job losses, and social ills. Newspapers like Denver's Rocky Mountain News published anti-Chinese editorials, even going so far as to call Chinese immigrants, quote, the pest of the Pacific. But the mayor is sorry. Now, the apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. From the virtual trading floor of Corium Slocum Oliver, this is Mind Your Own Business, financial news from the dollar's point of view. I'm Mike Ducinello on the virtual trading floor. The distance between startup and shutdown just shrank big time this week as the CNN Plus streaming app went from premiere to derriere at the speed of the light going out. The conventional wisdom on the street had always been that CNN Plus was a newspaper that thought it was a magazine. But as things turned out, it was a dumb idea that thought it was a business. Also this week, Netflix stock tumbled like a hippo on a staircase. All in all, it was a bad week for media which depend on viewer subscriptions. And in a sign that inflation was not just eating away, but actually devouring discretionary income, Netflix announced it might start including advertising in its video offerings. 
That must be music, if not catchy jingles, to the ears of this week's guest in the Startup Spotlight, who's been talking to Sylvia Meal Argent at the Money Honey Desk. Thanks, Mike. Zane Moray has been experimenting on the human brain since, at age 13, he forced his younger sister headfirst into a toaster oven. Today, his work is a lot less dangerous, unless you're in the advertising business. Zane, just what is your new company, Brain Flush, all about? Well, Sylvia, anybody who's got a laptop or a cell phone knows what it's like to be attentionally challenged. It sometimes feels like our brains have been colonized by over-talkative aliens. <laughs> and you know what? What? I mean, I, I, I know I read the press release, but sincerely, what? Well, that's pretty much what's been happening over the last century, right? I mean, think of how long that's been. Listen to these folks at, at uh, my house the other day. You say, Jax, the flowing cleanser, da 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 floats the dirt. Right down the drain, ba 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 Oh, I'm the man from Texaco. I work from Maine to Mexico. I love my job of something in your car. Those are 75-year-old ad jingles. Why should they still be in the brains of senior citizens? Because they're catchy? <laughs> the jingles, I mean, not the brains. Exactly. These are my wife's parents. They were high IQ people in their youth, and now their memories are filled with slogans and jingles. So the over-talkative aliens you mentioned are... Are the people in the advertising business. That's right. Well, I didn't... See, I, I was looking at surveys of Americans and what kind of general knowledge we know and comparing that to the public in England and Holland and a few other countries. We're like at the bottom. Hmm. The places in our brains that should be containing knowledge are filled up instead with slogans and jingles. And brain flush is designed to fix that. Hmm. Is it pills or some kind of treatment or what? Good question. It's as simple as wearing an augmented reality headset, except that it's not building a fake location in your head. It's very precisely targeting the parts of your brain that contain ad material. The software that enables that function, the brain flush algorithm, is, mm -hmm. is really what we bring to the table. The hardware, at least right now, actually is an augmented reality headset. We bought a whole bunch from Facebook and redid the inside. How does the algorithm distinguish ad material from other word clusters like, say, song lyrics or poetry? Well, if you know the American public at all, you know there aren't very few pieces of poetry in their brains. But mm. we, we had a couple of interns basically living at the Advertising Museum in Grand Rapids over mm. the summer. They mm -hmm. collected over 10,000 slogan and jingle word clusters. The algorithm searches the brain of the wearer in the parts of the organ that stores memories of words and zaps any of those clusters with a small but powerful electric charge. All of a sudden, you've got so much extra brain space <laughs> to learn actual things. It's like those brain-powered drugs on steroids. Which they're not. Uh, steroids, that no, is. No, no, of course not. Is there any danger that words used in ads could be zapped on their own? I mean, wouldn't they just disappear from your vocabulary? No, 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 no. In the, in the phrase, luckies taste better, cleaner, fresher, smoother, mm -hmm. the only thing wiped from the brainscape would be the phrase itself. You'd still have access even to the word luckies. Hmm. Finally, Zane, has there been any reaction from the 
advertising business itself. Well, about 80% of the agencies have gotten together to produce a rebuttal that denies they want their stuff in your heads for any longer than the duration of the campaigns. Mm -hmm. And the other 20%? They're competing for our account, thanks to some serious investors. Brain flush is going to be all over the Internet come this fall. Zane Moray, thanks for sharing the latest in Learned Forgetting. Mike? And for this week, that's all for Mind Your Own Business. From the virtual trading floor, I'm Mike Tuccinello saying, this week, mind the business of someone you love. So long. And now news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. Well, you know they're amateurs. It's a, it's a movement for amateurs, isn't it? Sure it is. And so, if you win a gold medal, you've earned a gold medal. But if you're in South Korea, short track speed skater, you've also earned fried chicken. South Korean short track speed skaters Hwang Dae-yeon and Choi Min-jong have each been given a chicken pension following their respective triumphs at the Winter Olympics in Beijing. This is courtesy of the head of South Korea's Olympic delegation, Yoon Hong-gun, who promised the chicken deal for South Korean athletes who won gold. He owns Genesis BBQ, one of South Korea's largest fried chicken franchises, and so he got the goods. Fried chicken makes up one-third of all poultry consumed in South Korea. So I guess it's popular there. Both Wang and Choi were promised free chicken until they turned 60 years old. Well, that's not a lifetime. A lot of people live past 60 these days. The pair will receive $24 worth of coupons to spend at the establishment every day. The amount will increase if prices change. <laughs> prices will change. We do know that. Yoon, head of the, big, uh, the chicken company, is also chairman of South Korea's skating union. Isn't that? And made the offer to the athletes in an effort to cheer them up following an officiating debacle at the Olympics. Imagine that. Silver medalists receive a coupon twice a week for 20 years bronze medalists for 10 years. One of the skaters who uh, won the chicken explained that sharing fried chicken with her family and teammates has always brought her joy. Quote, I sincerely thank the chairman for allowing me to feel such happiness for the rest of my life, she said, ignoring the fact that the rest of her life ends at age 60. No explanation of why, either. But it is, you know, it's a movement. It's an amateur movement. It's not like she's entitled to chicken 
for the real rest of her life. It's not like the guarantee, the offer that was made when CNN Plus debuted. Half price subscription for life. I got that. I think I'd rather have the chicken. The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And now we uh, do have news of the smart, 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 smart world that we're living in now. You've heard the theme already. Now here's the segment. (laughs) You can put them together in your own mind. You don't need me. I don't mean that. You do need me. A Tesla, ladies and gentlemen, appeared to crash into a private jet valued between three and a, three and a half million while in its self-driving smart summon mode, according to a witness quoted by businessinsider.com. The witness was a Reddit user. said he witnessed the event and posted a video of the incident to Reddit. But I didn't read it there. I read it in Insider. The footage shows a driverless Tesla crashing into a serious Cirrus Vision jet at Spokane Airport. The airport did not immediately respond to Insider's request for comment, which was made outside normal working hours. Cirrus, the company that made the jet, confirmed the plane was a Cirrus Vision, priced between three and three and a half belonged to a customer who was unable to identify. It's unclear how much damage the car or plane sustained. The Reddit user told Insider they were at the event, put on by the aircraft company. Tesla's smart summon mode allows the driver to hail the car using their phone within a distance of 200 feet. The feature reportedly caused havoc when it was first rolled out in 2019, with some Teslas reportedly driving into foliage or being involved in near misses. Now, who else didn't comment? Tesla. You know why? They don't have a public relations department. They can't comment until Elon tweets. The Tesla website carries a number of warnings for its smart summon mode. These include the fact that after three years, it's still a beta feature. And that as such, the car should be continually monitored by its owner while in that mode. Quote, Smart Summon is designed and intended for use only on parking lots and driveways located on private property where the surrounding area is familiar and predictable. Do not use Smart Summon on public roads. Unquote one of the warnings. Self-driving technology, you might be scared to know, uh, glad to know, is receiving gradual approval by U.S. regulators. In March, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration approved the production and deployment of cars without steering wheels or pedals. Just stay off the roads for a little while, for a few years. Wait, wait that out. Internet of Things business Insteon appears to have shut down its servers without notifying its customers. They, the customers, are now wondering what they'll do with various, quote, smart, unquote, home accessories that, according to the Register Tech website, are looking rather dumb. 
Instanton is a subsidiary of California-based Smart Labs, a maker of smart home devices, including the Instion Hub that controls assorted light switches, sensors, keypads, thermostats, remotes, and like that, that can be automated by a proprietary mobile networking protocol, or at least they were. The company's Internet presence has become unresponsive. Its press email address now bounces, various phone numbers don't work or are always busy, and its web forum is gone. But the Instion website reports that all is well. There's no need to panic. Company CEO Rob Lilness and other executives have removed any mention of Instion from their LinkedIn profiles. We didn't do that. A message was left for Lil Ness at a company called Richmond Capital uh, Partners, which he, it's an investment firm that he appears to run and which owns Instion Parent Smart Labs. No answer. The uh, silence of the servers doesn't prevent physical switches and buttons on Instion accessories from working, but it does mean there's no automation and scheduling available through the Instion Hub mobile app just like a normal switch, but a lot more expensive. The Instion protocol has been reverse-engineered, so technically savvy customers appear to have options for restoring lost functionality. But there's conflicting information about the risk of performing a factory reset on those devices. And also about this smart, 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 smart world, in April 2021, Russia's Financial Intelligence Unit met in Moscow with the regional head of Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange. This is reported by Reuters. The Russians wanted Binance to agree to hand over client data, including names and addresses, to help them fight crime, according to text messages shared by a company official. At the time, the Russian agency was seeking to trace millions of dollars in Bitcoin raised by Alexei Navalny, the jailed Russian opposition leader. Navalny, whose network was added back then to a list of terrorist organizations, said the the donations were in fact used to finance efforts to expose corruption inside the Putin government. The Binance head of Eastern Europe and Russia, Gleb Kostarev, agreed to the Russian request to to agree to share client data. The messages showed. He told his business associate, he didn't, quote, have much of a choice in the matter. Binance told Reuters it had never been contacted by Russian authorities regarding Navalny. It said that before the war was actively seeking compliance in Russia, which would have required it to respond to appropriate requests from regulators and law enforcement agencies. This encounter, which has not been previously reported, was part of behind-the-scenes efforts by Binance to build ties with Russian government agencies as it sought to boost its growing business, selling crypto in Russia. This is according to Reuters. This is according to Reuters quoting over 10 people familiar with Binance's operations in Russia. Binance continues to operate there since the war started. One of its main rivals in Russia is out of there. Legal representatives for Binance told Reuters active engagement with the Russian government is now stopped due to the conflict. 
And on Thursday, after the story appeared, Binance told users it's limiting services for major clients in Russia because of the latest European Union sanctions on Russia. Although Binance's trading volumes in Russia have boomed since the war began, Russians turned to crypto to protect their assets from Western sanctions and a devaluing ruble. If they thought that devalued, wait till they see what happens with their crypto. Hey, um, ladies and gentlemen, and I say hey advisedly, would you like your town or community to um, take some nuclear waste from sites like San Onofre? If so, the U.S. Department of Energy would like to get in touch with you. Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary, said the federal government will send dollars to cities and towns willing to step forward and accept nuclear waste that has been stacking up over the years at commercial U.S. power plants. Quote, we know those communities will have to be compensated for their willingness as a service to the nation to be able to house one of these sites, Granholm told reporters after she took a tour of the closed San Onofre station. It's a power plant that hugs the Pacific and stores some three and a half million pounds of radioactive spent fuel in caskets by the shore. When asked how much money would go to communities willing to host a site, Granholm said, eh, that's to be decided. The congressman from the area said the country faces, quote, a serious and growing spent nuclear fuel crisis. The communities I serve want to see results when it comes to removing the waste from our region. His district includes the San Onofre plant, now shuttered. And while we have much more work to do, that congressman, Mike Levin, says, before this waste is gone for good, we are finally making real progress, unquote. This is five months after the Department of Energy announced formal steps in what's sure to be a long process to find potential consolidated interim storage locations to take waste until the federal government finds a permanent underground repository. So we've had a temporary repository, we'll have an interim repository, and then a permanent repository. Only three stages of life after death for nuclear spent fuel. Grandholm says her department has gotten a lot of expressions of interest from communities. She didn't specifically name them. Yeah, we've, we've, we're solving this waste problem. We've got this. We got this. The um, community engagement panel in San Onofre said the announcement that federal money will be tied to a potential agreement for uh, interim waste storage is critical. It's been implicit that there was going to be funding attached, but it's never been articulated as part of a strategy, he said. The road, says the San Diego Union-Tribune, will likely be a long and bumpy one. But we got this. Clean, safe, too cheap to meter, to meter our friend the atom.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at this same time over these same radio stations or at a time of your choosing on the audio device of choice that you have. And it would be just like Kevin McCarthy getting a phone if you would agree to join me then, would you? All right, thank you very much. Uh Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk. The White Desk to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans for help, their help, with today's broadcast. The email address of this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. They're going fast, very slowly. All of that is available to you, plus so much more at harryshearer.com. And me, thank you for asking... And thank you for applauding. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the festival city.